Hi, Jonathan, you're right. How are you doing, Johnny? Is that you, is it? It is me, yes. I'm terrific, although I've just seen what's going on in Dublin with the Garda. That sounds horrible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, that's been coming a long time. Uh, We've had a very long lockdown, and a lot of young people are just very pissed off. Um, That's been going on all day yesterday and today. Um, I live about three miles down from town, so there's there's no trouble down here at all. It's all just in town. I can imagine in Belfast in a couple of weeks. I can't remember when the marches are. Is it... Next Sunday? Yeah, the whole epicentre of it all is July the 12th. Oh, OK, There's cool. stuff before that and after it, but usually July 12th is the, the big uh, flashpoint. Ah, well, July 11th is the Euro final, so I don't, oh. know, I don't know whether it would matter if England go in. Maybe it will keep one side of Belfast indoors. Maybe it's no bad thing, Northern Ireland are doing it. I expect there would be the usual stuff up there as well, especially if the weather's hot. What's happening here is just, uh, it, it's, it sounds pretty bad. I, I have a mate who owns a business in town and he said he'd never seen it as bad. Dublin is usually a fairly peaceful kind of a place, so this thing is a bit of a shock to the system, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and what it is for the listener, in order to keep the, not the peace, but to keep the pandemic out of Dublin, because you need the tourists, there's a kind of curfew. It means that people are stranded. It's the wrong kind of curfew. Well, awful on a human and political scale. I used to trust the FAI. I can't even trust the FAI anymore. I haven't read Champagne Football <laughs> because I don't want to besmirch my eyes. But that book is it's, in it's the... It's actually very funny. Oh, well, I'm sure, yeah, it's just chaos after chaos. But uh, Ireland didn't yeah. come off very well. I think the English FA were looking across the Irish Sea and think, well, there for the grace of John Delaney go we. Did, were you privy to all of this information? Was it? Was it an open secret? like to live the high life but no we didn't, we didn't know all the details but um, there was there was a growing sense for years that Delaney uh, wasn't the right guy for the job and was when the Aviva Stadium was built in 2010 or so I think it was um, Delaney more or less bet the farm on selling all these premium seats in the top reaches of the stadium uh, for God knows how many thousands of euro apiece he was basically banking on the fact that there were enough billionaires and multimillionaires in Ireland to get this over the line but between the beginning of the construction process around 06 and the opening in 2010, of course, the financial crash happened and uh, Ireland got it worse than most in terms of loss of money and just uh, the, whole, the whole economy just completely collapsed for about three, four years. And this left Delaney high and dry. And in retrospect, that was the beginning of the end for him, really. Once he couldn't sell the Aviva Stadium seats, uh, he was always on borrowed time. But the book, uh, I'm actually looking at it here, it's, it's on my shelf. 
um, it's broken nearly all sales records in, in Ireland. It's been it's been number one. It's, it's number one in the sports bestsellers even now, nine months on, I think, or, or ten months on, actually. Is it in um, paperback yet, or is it still a hardback? Yes, it is. Well, it's, the one I have here is a paperback. Right. I'm not even sure it came out in hardback. Uh, it's, any copy I've seen of it in, in bookshops has been a paperback. It's by two guys at the Sunday Times Irish edition, Mark Tighe and Paul Rowan, and they did an amazing job. It's it's an absolute hoot from start to finish in a very black, sort of bleak way. Uh, so, some of the stories in it are just bigger belief, really. Who's going to play Delaney in the film? <laughs> Actually, um... A friend of mine years ago said to me that this is this was in Delaney's sort of heyday when he came in as a trusting young reformer in the mid two thousands. And uh, a friend of mine said to me, "Where did they find this guy? He looks like Oscar Wilde." <laughs> and every time I've looked at Delaney since then, I've never been able to get that out of my mind. Oh, now I'm not going to either. Get um, Champagne Football, one of the many books in the football library that deals with corruption and mashugas. Um, uh, likewise, the fall of the House of FIFA, which is not about football. David Conn's book. Uh, just one after another after another, and then the guy with the cats in the Trump Tower, the whistleblower, Chuck Blazer. Um, whereas you, Jonathan O'Brien, have limited yourself to the Euro. Now, I worked for this big European football organisation. They refer to it as the Euro tournament, not the Euros. Is that what uh, you refer to them as as well? Um, I, I never really used to use the term Euros until a few years ago, but it increasingly became more and more popular in usage. Um, we use the euro currency over here, as you know, and it's always, even the plural of it is euro, not euros. Um, but I ha- in the book, I have said the euros a few times, just as a casual usage. Um, it's yeah. only in the last while UEFA have started calling it, you know, UEFA Euro 2004, UEFA this. I think the first tournament I ever remembered where it even was called euro at all was 88. It was the first one that Ireland qualified, so obviously the coverage here was wall to wall. And everything was Euro 88. I don't remember that being the case for 84, although in mitigation I was only about 7 or 8 when 84 was on. I think 88, I think, was where the branding sort of kicked in in earnest. Because 84 was the first real success in terms of finances for UEFA. All the other tournaments had made a loss, I think. In football terms, 72 was where it started to really, really take off. But 84 was the point where it actually made a few quid for UEFA. If 84 had flopped financially, a decent enough chance it may have been pulled and you detail this in Euro Summit, which I touched. It was it's in the W H Smith in Watford. If I dropped it off my third floor balcony, manslaughter charges await. But I wouldn't want to do that because it's a. I always say I have a couple of running features in this football library. You do get your laminated football library card, uh, which does have Eamon Dunphy on it, unless you want to swap him out. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't. I've actually met Eamon Dunphy once or twice over the years in Dublin because it's a small place. He's always very entertaining. His book is stunning. It's about 50 years old, but it's it's not about football. It's about being an employee. Only a game you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, written t- he's, he's written two outstanding football books, in my opinion. He's written that one, and he wrote the, the definitive biography of Matt Busby about in the early 90s, I think it was, which is called um, a, a Strange Kind of Glory. Now, it's years since I read it, but I remember it being absolutely excellent from start to finish. Yeah, I've spoken to Michael Crick, who wrote The Boss, and he wrote The Betrayal another of a Legend great, as well. Book. Yeah. yeah, two of the great books, actually, yeah. Um, those are both excellent books as well. The, the Betrayal of a Legend probably reads a bit strangely now, because I think it ends in, I, I think it ends in 89, and then another edition of it came out swiftly afterwards, which shoehorned in Man United winning the FA Cup against Crystal Palace in 1990. But it's still a very bleak book. I'd, I'd say if he tried to write one about the Glazers uh, now, 
it would be bleaker still, I'd say. Yeah, well, it wouldn't come out because the Glazers are very rich men and they have lawyers. Well... That's, it. That's the way of the world now, isn't it? Quite right. Uh, I read this piece, uh, Matt Dickinson. I don't know if you read the London edition of the Times, but Dicko Some, wrote. Sometimes, yeah. 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 Dicko's piece was all about how sports stars are so ultra PR'd that nothing is said without their say so. And I've got books in the library by Mike Calvin and Hunter Davis, which go beyond the. <laughs> Beyond the pale, I know what that means. I don't know if I can use that in the context of an Irish. Oh, of course you can. Oh, cool. no, nobody minds beyond the pale. Don't worry. Good. <laughs> uh, I, I did do the Irish question for GCSE history, and it was very difficult uh-huh. to answer. But it was very strange because I did it in 2004. So the Good Friday Agreement had come in. Whoop whoop, Blair. Ian Paisley's voice was allowed on the telly, uh, and now Irish politics is seemingly. Do you have a, Do you have a T shock at the moment? We do, yeah, um, Michal and Martin. The arrangement at the moment is that the two, what we call the two civil war parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, both fairly right wing. They have been sort of hated rivals for the last hundred years. Uh, last year, they went into coalition together, yes. uh, grudgingly, to keep out Sinn Fein. Um, and the arrangement is that Martin will be T shock until I think it's the end of next year. At which point, Leo Varadkar, the leader of Fine Gael, uh, who was Taoiseach for the three years before that, will take over again for two years or whatever it is. So um, it's, a, it's a weird arrangement and it's um, not a particularly popular one with most people, but uh, I, think the con- I think the consensus among most people is that we need another election soon enough, given the way things are going. Absolutely. And I wish I followed Irish politics more closely than whenever a bomb goes off in London, Derry Derry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Irish politics, it's, it's usually entertaining enough, but uh, it, it, there are times when it can depress you a little bit too, because nothing ever really seems to change. But um, what are we talking about there? Oh, God, yes, um, we're, we're mired in a lot of things. I'll just mention that you write for the Business Post, um, and um, well, we're, we're on Eamon Dunphy as well, who has a podcast who, where he just talks and talks and talks. Um, have you been on the podcast yet? to plug this book? No, I haven't. No, I haven't. It's pretty good. It's called um, The Stand and he has on people like John Giles and Liam Brady and people like that. They're not on RTE anymore, really. Brady occasionally is, but Giles and Dunphy aren't. So this is kind of an outlet for them to hold forth on whatever's going on in football at the moment. It's, it's very popular, I believe. Who is the um, face of Irish good, football? Good. I may have asked Paul Rowan this and I've forgotten, but for the Euro coverage, who is fronting it for RTE? Um, for RTE, the presenter is a guy called Darren Maloney who's... Um, he took over from Bill O'Herlihy, who was uh, he was the face of Aussie's football coverage for years. Uh, Bill passed away sadly a few years ago. Dara is uh, very good, very um, professional, um, knows his stuff. Uh, the pundits they have on there are much much younger uh, than in the past. They have Richie Sadler, who was at Millwall. He's a physiotherapist now. Or a psychotherapist. I think he is, yeah. I think, yeah. yeah I, think, I think he has, he's some kind of a therapist, yeah. He's on a lot. Um, Stephen Kelly, who I think played for Fulham, I was at Birmingham years ago, he's on as well. Damien Duff is on. Uh, Kevin Doyle, who used to be up front for Reading, he's on. And sometimes they've uh, Irish women's internationals on as well. Um, so it's very much changed from the days of uh, Giles and Dunphy and, and Brady. I see. Now, the big question, who is the Irishman supporting for this tournament? Personally, I'd be supporting Scotland because I'm, I'm a Celtic supporter, and uh, I would always I would always want Scotland to do well. Even if the team was made up of eleven Rangers players, I would still want Scotland to to do well. So obviously, the past twenty years have been very slim pickings for them. So it's great to see them back. Um, I suspect a few Irish people will also be following Finland because once it becomes known that they have a player called Daniel O'Shocknessy, whose dad is from Galway, I think I think he's a defender with HJK Helsinki. 
Um, if he gets a game, I can see a few Irish people uh, glomming onto Finland. Oh, well, it's a big game. This goes out on the day that Euro 2020 starts, on the 11th of June. So tomorrow right. night, as it is, is Denmark against Finland, um, which I think All is right. a, a great tie. And then they've also got Belgium and Russia. So perfectly possible that Finland can go through that group. Um, I'm, I always do this. I never make plans just in case England go through. I'll try and do as little England as possible because even I'm sick of the coverage of the England football team at the moment. Uh, so right. uh, the most important thing, how is your wife, Laura? Oh, she's grand. Um, she's from Mexico, so she's, um, she, um, she has a big interest in football. She, she's always glued to the World Cup whenever Mexico are on. Um, I've suffered through a load of... Uh, last 16 exits with her over the years uh, th- I think they've gone out in the last 16 8 times in a row whenever I'm over there like, it's, the, it's a national obsession like getting past the. they have some Spanish phrases which I can't remember right now but it's something to do with you know reaching the quarters or breaking the breaking the 16 or something like that um, it's a football mad nation and I think the last time I watched a World Cup match in the, in the company of a load of Mexicans was 2014. There was a bar in Dublin that just had a special offer on for Mexicans mm. to come and watch the game on a big screen, and they beat Croatia 3-1. They came from behind us. No, no actually, they didn't. They were 3-0. The place was rammed with Mexicans. Um, funnily enough, who all immediately drank up and went home the second the final whistle went. I wasn't expecting that, but... Uh, no, they're, they're, they're good fun to be around. Smashing, yeah. Um, the hope is that MLS really hooks certainly into Miami that's a very smart move by David Beckham to set up a football team in Miami where there are a lot of Latinos Uh, although unfortunately this time out uh, error are not in the Euro Uh, this was a difficult tournament where was it Mick McCarthy um, was in charge and then he came and left Um, the idea was that Mick would uh, be in charge for the qualifiers and then once the qualifiers ended whether we um, qualified or not, Stephen Kenny would take over for the tournament if we qualified and, and he would take over for the friendlies if we didn't. However, um, the pandemic came, of course, uh, things were thrown up into the air uh, and the team hadn't done well in the first few qualifiers anyway. And so the upshot of it all was that we scraped into the into the playoffs just about, despite winning only about three games, I think, and scoring about four goals. And Mick stepped down at the end of the qualifiers, as had been the deal. And Kenny took over for the playoff against uh, Slovakia. And we actually played, it was our best performance in several years, I'd say, probably since Euro 2016. Um, but uh, we missed a series of great chances. I think Conor Horahan missed, or Harahan, I should great say, play. missed uh, the best one. Um, yeah, he, he, he managed to shoot wide of an open goal. And we would have we would have been in against either Bosnia or Northern Ireland in the, in the final playoff if he put that in. So it went to penalties and we lost with some inevitability. But um, Kenny has obviously um, since then had a very bad run. I wouldn't I wouldn't blame him for all of it. It's, it's a very thin crop of players and everything that can go against him seems to have gone against him. From people getting COVID to pictures being rearranged and people getting injured. Uh, he's been completely luckless so far. So it was good the other day to finally see him get off the mark. Uh, they beat Andorra 4-1, although they were behind for about five minutes, which was quite harrowing. Um, but they, they eventually got into their stride and Troy yeah. Parrott scored a couple of goals, the guy from Spurs, and they ran out easy enough winners in the end. Hopefully that can be the launch pad. No, nobody's expecting him to qualify for the next World Cup because I think Portugal and Serbia Correct. are in the group. and we, we, just, we just aren't equipped to get past those kind of teams at the moment. But the general acceptance is leave, leave Kenny there for two or three years 
and if it's not working out you know just after that then fine it'll be time for someone else he isn't working with great materials he has this reputation as a modern thinking coach who won't use the long ball and against um, Slovakia we, we played some really excellent football it was, it was really good to see unfortunately after that we played a lot of friendlies and we hardly scored a goal I think Shane Duffy got a, he- a header against Bulgaria and then that was it for about six games it was dreadful yeah I remember so, that, yeah. Um, so, so something has got to give the, the hope here is that we just don't disgrace ourselves in the qualifiers for Qatar 2022 and from that build on it and hopefully have a serious crack of qualifying for Euro 2024 yeah you but don't want you don't want to go to Qatar years. personally I, I don't know about you but I won't even be watching it I, I, it's, it's bad taste when the stadiums are effectively masquerade yeah. you know, so I won't be watching the next World Cup I think England should just in these qualifiers play the under 12s play some kids Get match 10-0. It doesn't matter. I think it is a, a disgraceful tournament. Uh, the Ugly Game is the book written by the Times Insight team, uh, which lays bare their investigations. Just very, very ugly indeed. Troy Paris is the chap who's going to take over from Harry Kane at Tottenham. Um, did he get injured this season? He didn't play so much. No, I, I think he was, out of, he was out on loan at Millwall for a while. I wasn't really keeping... Yeah, he, he's had a couple of loan spells. Um, Troy Paris is from an area of Dublin's inner city, which has produced a lot of... Uh, good footballers over the years um, Wes Hoolan was another one there's, there's been a load more his name's escaped me Troy was never going to get much of a chance at Spurs under Mourinho it remains to be seen what, what kind of opportunities he'll get then Robbie Keane is from Teller that's much more out in the suburbs um, there was a very funny story did the rounds about Robbie Keane 20 years ago when he signed for Inter Milan from uh, Coventry um, as, as you know the Italians have three or four different uh, daily sports papers and they've all got loads of pages to fill. So when Keane signed for Inter Milan, one of these papers printed a load of cock and bull story about how Robbie, uh, when he was growing up, used to tend sheep in the hills above Tallinn before going off to football practice. I doubt Robbie Keane has ever been within 10 metres of a sheep, never mind <laughs> tend them, you know. The fields of something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are a lot of hills around Tallinn, but I don't think Robbie has ever attended sheep in them. No. I must say at this point, my favourite film, uh, one of my favourite films ever is Once, that Dublin is the best character in that film, and you have Glenn Hansard at the beginning busking on Grafton Street, uh, which is the scene of the bar in Galway Girl. Oh, really, yeah? From, I, uh, I, I met her on Grafton I Street actually... at the Ed Sheeran song. Well, it's good, because Dublin could definitely do with some good PR at the moment, because everywhere is shut, and as, as we were talking at the outset, um, time is overdue for uh, another, another film showing off Dublin's better side, if you will. Um, I've never actually seen once, but I, I hear it's, I hear it's, uh, it's it's a very um, it's a very evocative film in terms of showing off the the nicer parts of, of the city. Yeah, it is basically visit Ireland, that sort of thing. And I was just listening about an hour ago to What's Another Year by Johnny Logan. What a great melody! What a great chap Johnny Logan is. The man who wrote that song, Shay Healy, actually, he was a, he was a broadcaster for us. He wrote that song forty odd years ago. He sadly passed away a, a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, but. Um, as, as Eurovision tunes go, it's uh, definitely one of the better ones. Oh, it is a belter. I remember the. I remember watching Riverdance at that year's Eurovision. I'd never seen anything before it, never seen anything since it. I wouldn't sit through an hour of it, but good on Michael O'Flatley for doing what he does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, there was a period, I think there was a period in the 90s where Ireland won the Eurovision four years out of five, yeah. I think between about 92 and 96-ish. Most of us assumed that this was simply because other European countries didn't want to pay for staging it, so we had to keep hosting it and 
practically bankrupting ourselves year after year. There was one year it ended up in a show jumping arena down in rural Cork called Mill Street. I think that was 95 uh, because we, could, we just couldn't keep having the thing in Dublin because it was so expensive to put on. But um, yeah, I think it was four years out of five, which is uh, pretty bonkers by any standards. Yeah, it makes Ireland more successful than Sweden. I was in Germany 10 years ago in 2011. You know who represented Ireland? No, go on. Jedward. Ah, yes, how could I forget? You're looking after Jedward. Um, uh, thank, you for, thank you for taking them. I mean, they're Louis Walsh's creation. They're nothing to do with Britain. Um, <laughs> Jedward, how could I forget? Uh, um, lovely Jedward. Um, okay, um, we should pivot to Euro Summits, which is a book out on pitch publishing. Uh, you do thank Paul and Jane. I'm working with Paul and Jane on a book about the FA Youth Cup. So Manchester United will All feature right. in it. I'm sure there will be some other Irish lads. Um, Adrian yeah. Doherty would be one. I think he's... Is he Irish or Northern Irish? The chap who was at Man U, uh, subject of Oli uh, Kay's book, Forever Young. I think Adrian Doherty, I could be wrong on this, but I think he's from County Tyrone, which is in Northern Ireland. Yeah. So technically he would be British, although of course he would have identified as Irish. Uh, um, I, I believe that book is excellent. Again, it's another one I'm meaning to get round to. I think it's out a couple of years at this stage. Yeah, it's been out um, a while. It's the, we, we, this goes out, I think Adrian would have... It's his birthday and the day he was found dead as consecutive days in the middle of June. Oh, right. So that's why I mentioned... Yeah. That he died, was it? Yes, I think it is 2000, although Ollie yeah, Kay does right. a wonderful yeah. job. The, the kids who came through at Man U said he was more talented than them, so I'm looking forward to reading about that. Were there any Busby babes who were Irish in the 50s? Um, there was um, two fullbacks on the 1968 team uh, were Irish. Of course, it was George Best, but uh, the two fullbacks... Um, Shay Brennan and Tony Dunn. Shay died about two, in the year 2000 on the golf course, I think. And Tony Dunn passed away much more recently. Uh, Shay Brennan was the right back and Tony Dunn was the left back. They both played on the night at Wembley in 68 when United hammered Benfica um, in extra time. Um, I'm trying to think. That, and there would have been a few more. Eamon Dunphy was at Man United. But of course, yes. Uh, and didn't make it. John Giles was as well, but fell out with Busby uh, and got sold to Leeds. Um, I'm trying. I'm sure. I'm sure there were way, way more. Uh, I, I just can't think of them at the moment. No, that's the there thing I'm be. doing. The, the thing I'm doing during the Euro, as I do fewer and fewer interviews for the summer, is going to newspaper archives and um, researching primary sources. But your book, Euro Summits, uh, beyond comprehensive. Uh, it details every lineup, every scorer. Uh, every time someone picked their nose in the twelfth minute of an away game, it is a Brilliant book. So thank you for writing it. Was it your idea or did someone say, hey, you should write this? Um, it was my idea. I'm, 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 I'm glad you think it's comprehensive. You should have seen the original sort of King James Bible version. It was even longer. It was, it was something like 365,000 words. The book version is 170,000. Um, I'll tell you where I got the idea for it. It was a few Christmases ago. Um, it was Stevens's Day or Boxing Day, as yeah. you guys call it. And uh, the wife headed off to bed. And I was sitting up watching... Um, a DVD uh, of um, highlights of Euro 92. I just stuck it on and had a few beers. And I'm just watching it. I'm thinking, did anyone ever write a book about this stuff? And so the next day I went hunting online and I found um, some, I, I found a couple of German language ones and I found one Spanish one, but nothing in print in the English language market. I since discovered there is one in Kindle in English, but um, at this time there was nothing in print and still isn't until my thing. So I thought, why don't I have a crack at this? And I can, you know, I've no, I've no publisher yet, so I've no deadline, so I can just take it at my own, uh, my own pace. 
So over the next couple of years, um, I beaved away on it. Euro 2016 came and went. By this stage, I was just sort of starting to shape the thing down. Just like it's like sculpture, you start with a block of stone, you just keep lashing off bits of bits of concrete until you've got what you want. But until about this time last year, I still didn't have a publisher. Some of them uh, wanted interviews in it, and that just wasn't possible from a logistical point of view. I would have had to set aside about ten or twelve grand and fly around Europe, um, interviewing, hiring interpreters, staying in, in accommodation, and also like. For the earlier tournaments, most of these guys are dead now, so it would look weird if interviews just suddenly started appearing in the 80s sections or whatever. So I knocked that on the head and I just decided, right, I'll just keep this uh, as, you know, my own take on things. So eventually, I happened to be having a chat with Mike Gibbons, who co-wrote the incredible book Danish Dynamite with Rob Smith and Lars Eriksson, and he also wrote the excellent Euro 96 book, When Football Came Home. And I was talking to him and he, he asked me what I was up to. And I mentioned that I had this monster thing in the works, but um, I hadn't uh, lined up a publisher yet. And he just said, leave it with me. And a few days later, he got back to me and he said, uh, send this to Paul and Jane at Pitch. They're, they're interested. They, they like the sound of it. They want to have a look. So I did. And uh, the rest went from there. And Paul and Jane have been excellent. Uh, I was allowed to have a bit of input into the, the wonderful front cover, which was done by Duncan Allner. It's a really beautiful uh, piece of work, mm-hmm. and um, I was I was allowed to pick out the photos as well. So um, all around, I can't complain; they've been great. And um, so here, here the book is. I'm very happy it's out. I'm really trying when I'm talking to pitch authors to get them to say anything bad about Paul and Jane. I met Paul about ten years ago because I had an idea for a book, uh, which I turned into an ebook that I'm not here to talk about. And the original idea was: Why are we booing Ashley Cole? Cole is the best left back in the world, and yet we're booing him. Um, I'm not going to mention the knee. I'm already sick of the knee. Stop! Is the knee getting coverage in Ireland about these England players taking the knee? Um, not really, no, because um, I say our live sport has been curtailed as well. Oh. Um, it, it's, it's not being done at Gaelic games matches or anything like that. I mean, we get the English papers and the English media, obviously, but um, it's not a huge issue here yet, although that's, uh, things may change on that score. Um, but yeah, pitch are, are great to deal with, very um, pleasant and easy to deal with. Always yeah. have been since the No, I'm I'm looking forward to asking for a copy of the book, uh, which is called Euro Summit, which came out six weeks before the start of Euro 2020. The final of which is at Wembley Stadium, which is mere. It's a hop, skip, and a met line away, uh, Wembley Stadium. So I might go and peek my head out uh, when Scotland reach the final. Scotland against Spain, I think, will be the final. Um, no, I really hope I really hope Scotland do well. But the pro and the con is that they're going to want independence. They're going to use it politically. And if England win, by gum, the government are going to be insufferable. In 1988, we'll we'll go through chronologically, but I'll start with 88. And Ireland was a mess in 88. Did Irish politics get behind Jackie Charlton's team? They did, but not not half as much as they did at Italia 92 years later. Um, in 88, I think it was just kind of a sense of shock that we were there at all because we had qualified in very weird circumstances. We had beaten Bulgaria and then we had to kick our heels on the final day of the qualifiers. I think we played Israel the day before Scotland played Bulgaria in Sofia. We played Israel at Daily Mountain. We beat them 5-0. David Kelly, later of Newcastle, I think, scored a hat-trick. And there was a general sense of, at least we've done our best this time and we can build on this and have a crack at qualifying for the 1990 World Cup. And then the following evening, Scotland go out and beat Bulgaria with three minutes to go. So um, there was, there was a, a kind of sense of, like, why are we here? 
Uh, I remember, I, I think I say this in the book, but there was a succession of friendlies in the run-up to 88, and at one of them would be Yugoslavia 2-0, I think, at Lansdowne. And there was only about ten or 11,000 people there. Uh, yes, there, there was some hype, but it, everything just went completely bananas two years later in a way that wasn't witnessed in 88. Having said that, I personally, I have far, offender, far fonder memory far fonder memories even <laughs> of um, 88 than 1990 because the football was better by and large we won a game we beat England which was one of the best was and still is one of the best results in our history because that was a good England team despite the fact they lost three games out of three we came so close to making the, the semi-finals we came far closer than Spain did in the other group so we basically finished unofficial fifth place in the tournament um, whereas Italian 90 I, I, I just remember being really bored during our games even though we got a bit further we got to the quarters and we um, gave Italy a decent game in the final match 88 for me trumps 1990 every and, time and if you want to know about World Cup 1990 Simon Hart has written a great book called World in Motion there's a lot about uh, Jackie Charlton there applied for the England job wasn't even given an interview sod them God there must have been a big uh, grieving period I mean there was a grieving period here but for Jack Charlton when he passed away last year Yes, it was huge. Um, there's a, a spar shop around the corner from me. Uh, painted their entire window with a mural of Jack uh, the week that it happened. Um, Jack had kind of dropped out of sight for a few years because of his, uh, his sad illness. And uh, I remember he popped into my head a few years ago and I remember thinking, Jesus, it's, it's going to be a big one when he dies. There's going to be a huge outpouring. And there was. In fact, it was even bigger than I thought it would be. He was so well loved. He gave people hope, really, in a time that, as you say, it wasn't a particularly, a particularly good era for the country. Just by making us competitive and getting us on the big stage, we're, we're there with the other 23 teams or the other seven teams or whatever it is. There's an argument he stayed on too long, but I mean, most people don't care about that at this stage. But his, his final year or so was pretty bad. But after what he'd achieved in the past, that, that made up for 10 times over, you know. We lacked belief as a country and as a football team. Even when we had loads of amazing players from Liverpool and United and other teams in the 80s, there was always something would go wrong. Someone would score a terrible own goal or a, ref- a linesman would put up an offside flag. The running joke in the country was any time Ireland scored a goal, you couldn't celebrate it. It was, it was actually a forerunner of VAR now. You just couldn't celebrate because you, you just knew some bastard linesman was going to stick up a flag in places like, uh, you know, Rotterdam or Paris or whatever. So um, with that late Scotland goal in Sofia by Gary Mackay, it was like everything just changed. I, I clearly remember this. I wasn't even watching at the time because the game was so awful. And myself and my dad had switched over to um, ITV where England were destroying Yugoslavia that night in Belgrade. I'm just watching the final stages of this. And then Brian Moore said, I'm hearing there's been a goal in Sofia for Scotland. And my dad and each other just looked at each other and screamed and immediately switched over and caught the last two minutes of the game in Sofia. And afterwards in the RTE studio, everyone just poured bottles of champagne over each other. It was, it was fantastic. <laughs> so moments like that are what people remember from the, the Jack Charlton years. And uh, that's, that's why there was such a, a huge reaction uh, when he passed away. And you imagine being the second best footballer in his family. I don't think anyone else... Uh, can be the, the best, second best footballer, uh, apart from maybe Rafinha, whose brother is Thiago. Uh, Ireland's second Euros was 2012. We'll skip over that. You lost all three to Italy, Croatia, and the eventual winners, Spain. The third Euros, uh, where were you when Ireland beat Italy um, and then lost to France in 2016? I was in, I was in my local, which uh, is a little place um, up the road for me. It's a little sort of Chavin-type bar 
called uh, Roy Luck. It's not my local anymore, but it was then. And uh, I almost missed the Robbie Brady goal because um, there was five minutes left, and I decided right away I need to I need to go to the toilet. So maybe if I go down right now, they'll score. And I went down, and from upstairs I could just hear this incredible scream of sort of ecstasy, but then an, an absolute deflation and despair. And I ran back up just to see a replay of Wes Hulham going clean through and shooting horribly weakly straight at uh, the keeper, Sirigu. And I thought, Christ almighty, that's it, they've blown it. Like, he was clean through, he couldn't fail to score, but he did. But Hooligan was always renowned for being irrepressible. You could mark him out of a game and he'd still always be trying to come up with something right to the last. So literally within about 30 seconds of missing this golden chance to put us through, he gets the ball again goes past the defender, looks up, sees Robbie Brady making the run and curls over a beautiful ball. And it's one of those where, just even as, even as it's sailing through the air, you know someone's going to get a header on it because it's so good. And Brady put it in and the place just erupted. And about 15 minutes later, after the final whistle, um, I remember I had to run down to my house to get something. And I just stood still in the street for a minute and you could just hear all across the city people roaring. It was, it was a wonderful, wonderful night. I hope that you can rediscover that for the next Euros. How difficult was it to remove the subjectivity when you were writing about Ireland? I suppose very easy. I've been asked about this by a few people, actually. Uh, I made a conscious decision early on to treat Ireland as just another team. And I've I tried hard not to be too misty-eyed about them. And I'm savage on them in the 2012 chapter because they were so bad. It's funny you should mention, actually, I was... Um, I was looking at the Amazon page for the book there yesterday and an English person left a very fair review. He gave it four stars out of five, but he left a very fair review in which he said he liked the book overall, but he complained that I was too harsh on England. And now we all we all have our own biases as individuals and I'll admit that as an Irishman, in an ideal world, England won't be winning Euro 2021. However, you've also got to be try, try to be fair. And I think the reason I've gone in hard on England. I, I've, I've gone in hard on plenty of teams in the book. I was thinking about it. I, I was thinking like England have played about 30 odd games in the finals and they've only ever played really well about six times maybe out of that lot. The Spain game in 1980, the Germany and Dutch games at 96, the Croatia game in 2004. For some reason their Euros record isn't a patch on their World Cup record. They've, they've done much better in the World Cup than they have in the Euros. I think they've reached the semis twice in, in the Euros and that's one of those was on home soil. I think t- I think t- things are very teed up for them very well this time because if they win their group, they'll have six games out of seven at home. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a de facto home tournament for them in a way that it's not going to be for other teams. They have the players in midfield and, and attack to win it definitely. My concern with them would be Pickford in goals, where you know anything can happen with that guy. Put Henderson in. And Put Henderson in. Because he's a better goalkeeper, although Henderson did drop an almighty clangor for the under 21s, which everyone missed uh, a couple of seasons he, ago. He, he did, well, I've seen, him at, I've seen him at United. He's made a couple of mistakes, but he, he seems far less error prone than David De Gea at the moment. Um, it's looking like Pickford will get the nod. I saw Nick Pope got injured. I, I think Nick Pope is an excellent goalkeeper, and um, I, think, I think that's a big blow for him that people maybe haven't really noticed. Um, in defence, like, you, you've got John Stones, who can be very good sometimes, but it's also quite wobbly at times. And Harry Maguire is not going to be fifth. I mean, if, if Maguire was to play against Scotland, I think it would be five weeks exactly since he's kicked the ball. And England have been down this road before with Brooking and Keegan in 82 and more recently Wayne Rooney at two different World Cups. Playing unfit players, just it's really not a good idea, no matter how good the player is. 
Maguire might be useful to them, assuming they make the quarters or whatever. But I wouldn't be pitching them in from the start. Scotland may not have a brilliant attack, but I'm sorry, not Scotland. Uh, Croatia's first for them, isn't it, England? That's the uh, first game. Yes, yeah. um, England against Croatia um, at Wembley on Sunday, and it's live. Yes. Even if they're technically fit and they can run full pelt, they're still going to be rusty because they've, they've missed weeks and weeks of football. So if, if I were England, I would I would definitely think twice about using Maguire, certainly in the first round. Yeah, uh, I think you've got, you have to take them just in case and also great for morale. You've got to take the Man United captain, but Man United captain's unfit. Jordan Henderson is unfit, captain of Liverpool. So I think what you're going to have is really strong dressing room and then hope that Grealish and Mount do something, which they are very capable of. And then if Harry Kane plays badly, well, it's obviously Daniel Levy's fault. I have made a whole sheet of reasons. People, people who will be blamed, it's Southgate and Pickford and Daniel Levy and the Black Lives Matter people. They'll all be blamed. I think most of the youngsters like Bellingham, Foden, Mount, free pass. They can do what they want. Uh, quarterfinals, minimum, semifinals, hopefully. 